0: And we do invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. I love that song, Do Everything Without Complaining or Arguing. Remember guys, we're exiting through this door over here, other side, other way. (laughs) Do you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14? I was thinking when we get in the construction phase of the building, we're going to have the kids sing that song every week. Just as a reminder, do everything without complaining or arguing. What do they say? All the important lessons in life you learn in kindergarten. Hmm. Revelation 14 this morning. We're looking at verses 14 to 20 as we continue our steady march through Revelation. Hope to have this done by August. I should be finished with Revelation. Do you ever try to imagine what it's going to be like when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory? Do you ever uh, try to picture Jesus who ascended to heaven after his resurrection and was caught up in the clouds when he comes back on the clouds in great glory and with much power? Do you ever try to imagine sometimes what that day will be like? I think one of the reasons Revelation is such a precious book regardless of what interpretive approach you may take, and there's different ways people interpret it, but we come together when celebrating this great moment when Christ will return. And I think one of the reasons Revelation is so precious is that it gives us such a clear vision and repeatedly clear visions of what that day will be like when Jesus returns. And today we look at one of those visions. It's in Revelation chapter 14. And here Jesus's return is described through the imagery of a great harvest day. A great harvest. So let me look at Revelation 14-20 14, 14 to 20 with you. It says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the, seating, uh, on the throne, uh, uh, no, sorry, to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time has come uh, to, the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still, another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So here's a vision of Christ's return put in the language of harvest. But before we get into the imagery of the harvest, uh, because I want to sort of walk through that imagery of the harvest, there's sort of one quick interpretive issue you kind of have to settle as you look at this. Uh, And if you you notice when you're reading it, it looked like there were two separate harvests taking place. Did you kind of see that as you're reading it? You have verses 14 to 16. You have Jesus, the Son of Man, being called forth to harvest, and he swings his sickle. And then in verses 17 to 20, there's an angel with a sickle and he's told to harvest and then he takes what he harvests and throws it into the wine vat uh, where the grapes are trampled. And so one of the interpretive questions, it's not, I don't think it's a, a huge deal-breaking thing one way or the other, but one of the issues is how do these two visions of harvest relate to each other? And there's basically two approaches people take. One is to see these two visions as describing sort of two separate things. And typically those who hold this view will say the first Harvest describes the gathering of Christians, the gathering of believers at Jesus' second coming. And the second harvest in verses 17 to 20 uh, is the gathering of unbelievers for judgment. It's, it's, so that's one way to read this passage. Um, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus actually uses the imagery of harvest to describe his second coming. And in those passages, he'll talk about a dual harvest. Of gathering, you know, the the wheat and the the tares, the the wheat and the weeds, and one goes in the barn and one goes in the fire. So that imagery is used in the New Testament. Um, A second way of understanding the relationship of this passage, uh, again, before we get into the the meaning of it, but another way to understand the structure of it is to see both of these descriptions as describing the same thing, just from different perspectives, so they complement each other rather than being sort of sequential. And that's the view that I tend to lean toward, at least that's how I'm going to be reading it this morning. Um, yeah, these these two uh, harvests are different, but they're also very similar. You know, you look, they have the same structure. There's a person with the sickle, the angel comes out with a loud voice and says, Go harvest, and then the harvest happens. Um, you'll notice in verse fifteen it says, Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. See that word time The time to reap. In Greek, that's the Greek word for hour. The hour to reap has come. And that word hour in Revelation always has judgment connotations. So so that makes me think that that first reaping is also sort of the gathering of unbelievers for final judgment. Uh, And and not only that, but there's also an Old Testament text that stands behind this text in Revelation. There's an Old Testament allusion taking place. And if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, the little uh, bifold inside your bulletin, and look on the second page where it says three central Old Testament texts used in Revelation. There are three major Old Testament passages that Revelation 14 draws upon as it describes the second coming of Jesus in this portion of Revelation. And look at the second one, the swinging of the sickle. That comes out of the book of Joel. Joel. And here's the uh, verse, uh, Joel 312 to 13 Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, there it is, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes for the winepress is full. And the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. So clearly in Joel, the swinging of the sickle is a very much a judgment kind of image. So going back to Revelation 14, it seems that you see the swinging of the sickle in both of those contexts. So so I take it to mean that both of these are descriptions of the same thing, just with slightly different language, probably for the sake of emphasis, for the sake of sort of stacking image upon image in order to drive home the certainty of this coming Judgment of God, but regardless of how you read it, I, you know, I, like I said, it's an interpretive issue, but it's not a major one. But I sort of wanted you to know how I'm approaching the text. But with that said, let's think about the harvest. What is it going to be like when Jesus comes back? Well, one thing it's going to be like is like a great harvest day. I don't know if any of you here have uh, experience with harvests. Anyone been harvesting before? I mean, You know, here in the suburbs, uh, I mean, harvest our tomatoes maybe at the end of the summer. Maybe you grow some vegetables in your yard. Um, both of my families uh, are farming families on my grandparents' side. My dad's grandparents were farmers in Nebraska, and they harvested prairie grass for their cows. And uh, my, my mom's side of the family are farmers in Iowa, and they harvested corn and soybeans. Uh, my wife's family, my, my in-laws, are cranberry farmers. They have cranberry bogs down in Carver. And one of the fun rhythms of life being a part of their family is come mid-September, early October, we all go down and see the cranberry harvest, you know and i 'm sure probably a lot of you have seen cranberry harvest beautiful things. they flood the bogs, they knock the cranberries off the whole you, you see these oceans, these lakes uh, of cranberries you know spreading out it 's beautiful, just red floating on top of the water, and we love to go down and, and celebrate at the harvest time. so harvest is an exciting time it 's something you wait for, you anticipate, you work for, you strive for, and finally it comes. the harvest finally comes and In harvesting, regardless of what kind of crops you're harvesting, there are typically three major phases of a harvest. There's three things that happen regardless of what the fruit or vegetable may be. And all three of those phases are represented here in this text. So so let's just move through the three phases of a harvest and see how when Jesus comes back, we see all those phases of the harvest process taking place. The first phase is this. This may seem a little simple, but it, it, it's a phase. You have to wait for the fruit to ripen. That's, I mean, it sort of goes without saying, but you should probably say it. You can't just harvest whenever you want. You have to wait for the cranberries to turn nice and red. You have to wait for the grapes to swell up. And so it's right here in this text. Notice the emphasis upon ripening. Verse 15. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was seated on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap. Why? Why should I start reaping? Because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Or look at verse 18. Take your sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine. Why? Because the grapes are ripe. When I was in Macedonia last summer on that mission trip and also in Greece, it was uh, August and it was getting near the time for the grape harvest and all the grape vines were ripe. You know, I I haven't really been in grape country before, but we'd be driving through Macedonia or going through a part of Greece, and there would be these, you know, along the side of the road, just long vineyards and trellises with vines, and these huge bunches of grapes just ripening in the sun. I I love fruit. I love grapes. You know, I just want to pull the car over and jump a fence and, um, you know, start gorging myself on fresh grapes. You know, the grape harvest is ready. You see the fruit swelling. It's getting close. Is it ready yet? Just a few more weeks. It's almost ripe. And so in the same way, Jesus will return when the world is ripe. But not ripe with juice. Ripe with sin. Ripe with guilt. This is a judgment context here. And what Jesus is waiting for is in a sense for sin to reach its fulfillment in the world you know sin isn't just an act i commit it's not just oh i told a lie or i i uh, thought a bad thought it's something that's it's a living growing kind of thing in a negative sense that ripens and it grows uh sin sin builds over time uh, for those of you in finance it's like compounding interest sin just compounds for those of you who are bakers it's like leaven that gets into the dough and it rises and grows over time. Sin ripens. Take a 13-year-old who rejects Christ and doesn't know the gospel and stands in hostility to God. And then take a 75-year-old who rejects Christ, doesn't know the gospel, stands in hostility to God. Both are guilty in God's sight. Both need Jesus' grace and mercy. Both are under God's judgment until they come to the gospel. And yet, the 75 year old is so much more ripe. You know? There's something that's happening. You know, yeah, the 13 year old is already causing trouble and, you know, is, is being difficult. But, but the 75 year old has had a whole life of unbelief, of selfishness, of hostility to God. And that, that ripeness has had generations, it's had decades to, to send out waves of unbelief and sin into children and grandchildren and workplaces and friends and marriages. And to think about the ripening of guilt over a person's lifetime. Sin ripens and it rots and it grows from within. Families ripen in sin. Sometimes over generations, patterns get established in families and, and things sort of compound and build. And you look back and you say, you know, I'm just like my dad, who was just like grandpa, who I, from what I understand, you know, from the history books, was just like great-grandpa. You know, These patterns just get built up and they get taught to the next generation and the next generation takes it a step further. And so that's how sin does. It grows and it builds. Nations build up wrath. Um, nations accrue guilt interest over time as, as nations move further and further from God. Typically, nations don't start and then move toward God. They usually, over time, gradually drift away from Him as the wrath builds up and the guilt builds up. And so every day, you know, as each act of violence is committed, as each angry outburst takes place, as each a moment of pride and selfishness and indifference to the poor and the needy as each unborn child is killed. The guilt grows and the guilt grows. And eventually God says to a nation, Ripe! You are ripe! You know, sin has to build up to its full measure. It's really frustrating sometimes being a Christian in this world. We can get very discouraged. We look in the world, we're like, what is wrong with this world? I can't take it anymore. I mean, how, how much longer, Jesus? Can't you see this, Jesus? Why won't you come back? And it's as if Christ says, I'm coming back. It's just not ripe yet. It's Just kind of a, a jarring thought that it actually has to ripen more. We have not yet reached in our world today the way it was in the days of Noah. When it says, the Lord looked down from heaven and saw how wicked mankind had become. And it says in Genesis, how every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. The world has to get to that place. And then Christ, who knows the time, will come in judgment. So be patient. This requires patience. And have, how many times have we have seen this in Revelation? Patient endurance from the part of the saints. We have to continue to live in a world that in some ways is increasing in hostility to God's glory where things become more and more polarized over time, where, where sin grows and ripens. And we have to live with it. We have to put up with it. But we recognize it's ripening. And the harvest is coming. And when the world is ripe... Then comes the second phase of the harvest, which is the reaping. So once the fruit is ripened, then it is reaped. And we see that again in verse 15. Then another angel came out of the temple who was uh, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Again, in verse 18, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them in to the great winepress of God's wrath. And so there's a gathering that takes place in a reaping. In those days, you know, they used a sickle. It was like a sort of a carved, uh, curved, sharp blade. And they would use that to cut uh, things and then to gather them usually reaping has two parts you have to separate the fruit from the tree or the vine or the uh, whatever it is the bush and then you have to gather what you've separated and sort of put it together in some container that's how reaping takes place so they would in ancient israel you know they'd grab a bunch of wheat and some guy would just go along cutting it with his sickle and then the guy would come behind him gathering up the wheat and binding it up putting it there then he the next bundle and bind it up uh, they would gather the grapes. They would cut them off the vine, throw them into the wine vat. Uh, so one moment, it's a happy grape growing on a vine. The next moment, chop, whop, whop, it's in the wine vat. You know, how did I get here? That's what the reaping is like. It's sudden and dramatic, and the fruit is gathered. In the cranberry harvest, what they do is they flood the cranberry bogs uh, for a wet harvest, and then they'll have these machines that are like little... Uh, buggies, I guess you could call them. One guy sits on it. And on the front is this rotating cylinder that's like a combine, you know, for corn, except instead of blades, it has these long sort of rubber um, bars that, that won't hurt the vine, they won't hurt the cranberry, but they'll knock the cranberries off. So they'll submerge those under the water and they'll just go along and boom, 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 and the cranberries float up as they get knocked off the vine. And then typically you wait. The wind will usually blow all the cranberries to one side of the bog. They put a big corral around all the cranberries and then a bunch of guys just slowly pull that that, that corral in and slowly pull the cranberries in and then at the, the end of the the edge of the uh, the bog there will be a big sucker machine that's, I don't know what it's technically called, a sucker machine and it uh, <laughs> it sucks out cranberries and then they go into a cleaner and then they get pff, dumped into a huge 18 wheeler and it's so fun to like, you know, our kids would like, climb in the back of the 18 wheeler and to stand there in front of a wall of cranberries this high You know, you're like, wow, and you know, you get bags of cranberries and I get anyone here a bag of cranberries who wants one this fall. A hundred bucks a bag. Um, (laughs) Happy to get one for you. So, yeah, it's harvest. but But, you know, that's the dramatic process of reaping. One minute swelled up in our pride. One minute. Swelled up in our self-righteousness, you know, full of ourselves, full of our wisdom and our intelligence and our philosophy, full of our money and our our uh, power and all the things that we think are so great about us. And then, in one moment, whew Cut, picked, plopped. What, what happened? To suddenly realize that all of the stuff that I thought was my security and my confidence was actually just the ripening, getting me ready for the great judgment day. What a terrifying, dramatic, sudden transition that's going to be when Christ returns. And notice also about the reaping. Who does the reaping? Because I think that's an emphasis of this text. Who the reapers are. Certainly they are angels. There's usually a lot of people involved in the harvest time, so there'll be the angels going forth to reap the harvest. But who is at the head of the great harvest party? As, as the reapers descend from heaven with their sickles, and, and I imagine them singing a harvest song full of joy, this thunderous song, Of anticipation of the harvest, you know, marching down from the heavens. Who is at the company, ahead of the company? Who's the harvest master? Who is the the foreman calling forth for the harvest? It's the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 15, 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. This reference to Jesus as the Son of Man is, of course, the second, you probably recognize this one, the second major Old Testament allusion in this passage. It's referring back to Daniel 7. If you want to, again, take out your sermon notes, and let's look at that second Old Test, major Old Testament allusion from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was... One like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7 began to be fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. But it's yet to reach its full fulfillment when Christ Until Christ returns, and then this passage will sort of be fulfilled in all of its completeness and all of its meaning when Jesus returns on the clouds as the Son of Man comes in judgment. There's a part of me that just, as I read this verse, you know, and I was thinking about what it means for us today, I think the thing that I was struck with was just with a longing to see Jesus come, you know, a longing to see that day. Again, we live in this world and as a Christian and at times it feels like we are pilgrims in an unholy land. Like, man, Jesus, you know, you're the King. You are the Lord of Lords. You deserve all the wisdom and the power and the glory and the thanks and the honor. Salvation belongs to our God. Jesus, you are the morning star. You're the pearl of great price. And yet, this world doesn't pay any attention to you. Doesn't it just grind at your soul at some level, brothers and sisters? You know, in in my moments of spiritual clarity, which unfortunately are not as often as I wish they would be, but when those moments of spiritual clarity come, and I I really, I'm like, wow, wait a minute. Jesus is all. Christ is Lord. And I recognize His glory. You know, often a, a second emotion will pair up with that one, which is, Lord Jesus, when are you going to come and let the whole world know who you are? Why is it the only time people speak your name is as a curse? You know, Lord, you're ignored, you're mocked. People worship other things rather than you. I worship other things rather than you. Lord, come. I want to be rescued from my sin nature completely. And there's this yearning that takes place that the Lord would come. And someday he will. Look, look at another text, another harvesty Jesus returning text put a bookmark here turn to matthew chapter twenty four it's on page nine eight two in the pew bible nine eighty two matthew twenty four this is another description of jesus's return and his gathering Here we find the gathering of the elect matthew twenty four thirty matthew chapter twenty four verse thirty At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That day is going to be such a dramatic transition for this world. Such a dramatic transition that this world will not survive. It'll be like driving 70 down the highway and slamming it into reverse. It'll just be, what? You know, all the stuff that we're so absorbed in that we think is really what life is about and we ignore Christ and suddenly there he will be in his power and glory and none of this will matter at all all eyes will see him and will realize the harvest has come and all I am is just a ripe grape i've completely missed the whole meaning of existence i've somehow missed this whole thing so don't wait until that day to do your business with jesus don't wait till that day. It's too late then. Do your business with Christ now. Come to Him for forgiveness and for a new life and to know God. I uh, I just joined Facebook. Uh, I was finally sort of humiliated into it, and uh, and uh, so now I'm you know making friends with all these people from high school that I really didn't like in high school, but I'm friends with them now on Facebook. Um, <laughs> But but one of one of my friends from high school, you know, I looked at his profile and it says it says on Facebook, you know, your religious interests or you know religious views, and his was, I'll tell you after I die. Wrong answer. Don't wait till then to figure this out. Don't wait till then; it's too late. Come to Christ now. And for those of us who claim to be Christians, I think a text like this is a call. To examine our hearts and say, Am I really a believer? You know? That's a command you find in the New Testament. Test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, Paul says. I think one of the duties of Christians is to examine ourselves. That's why it's so important to be a member of a local church. Because what part of what membership in a local church is, is other Christians looking at you and saying, Yeah, I see Christ in you. Or if you get way off the tracks in sin, they tap you on the shoulder and they say, you know, you say you're a Christian, but you don't live like it right now. And so that's what church membership is in part, is that accountability of testing ourselves and saying, am I really a believer? Am I really walking in the Lord and growing in the faith? Uh, Because it's so easy to deceive ourselves. That's part of the sin ripening is self-deception. So I need to test myself and see if I'm in the faith. You, You know, yeah, maybe I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus when I was five, But is my life borne any fruit since then? Do you see the transformation of the Holy Spirit? Do I see the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Or am I still just ripening up in my sin and nothing has really changed in terms of how I live my life? So we need to do our business with Christ now because on the day of reaping, it will be dramatic, sudden, boom, chop, plopped into the wine vat, which then leads to the last phase of the harvest. So the harvest is reaped, is ripened. Once it's ripened, it's reaped. And once the fruit is reaped or gathered together in one place, then comes the final phase of any kind of harvest, which is the fruit has to be ruined, has to be ruined. What I mean is that typically when food is harvested, it's somehow processed. Uh, If you gather wheat, you typically crush the kernels, you know, to make flour. If you gather cranberries, you have to boil them to get the juice out of them. You don't, you know, you typically don't just squeeze a cranberry or the juice just doesn't come out naturally. You have to boil those things and get all the juice out of it. Uh, uh, When I was back home in Las Vegas, we actually went to the ocean spray plant to see what happened to all of our cranberries. And there they're boiled and heated and then, you know, the juice comes out and then out the other end of this huge factory come all these bottles of cranberry juice, you know, ping, 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 ping. And uh, there's the cranberry juice, or as we in Ocean Spray like to call it, red gold, flowing down the assembly line. But it ha- something has to happen to the fruit in order to typically to, to become what it is that you want to use it for. Uh, and so it is with the grape harvest. Grapes have to be trampled. That's typically what was done in the ancient world. Look at verse 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth Gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses as the horses' bridles, for a distance of sixteen hundred stadia. So, in the ancient world, when they trampled grapes, they would have uh, archaeologists have found these things. They were wine wine presses, wine vats. They would have one sort of tub, often carved out of the rock. And they would put the grapes in that, and then there would be like a a channel at the bottom of it going down to a lower uh, tub, and that's where the juice was collected. So the upper one was the wine press. The lower one was the wine vat. And you know how this was done. They would then put all the grapes in, and then people would just, you know, wash off their feet, take off their sandals, and, you know... Stomp the grapes. And it was a time of joy and excitement. You know, we could imagine little kids jumping in there and stomping. You could just kind of picture whole families gathering around and singing and stomping and everyone's clothes are getting all grape juicy and all stained at the bottom from all the red juice. And then that juice flows down into the wine vat and then begins to ferment to be made into wine. And that's the imagery here. Kind of. And I think this is probably one of the most arresting verses in terms of a a very visual description of God's wrath and judgment. Because what's put into the wine vat in this text is not grapes, but the grapes are symbols of an unbelieving world, a mass of unbelievers. And what's splattering up is not grape juice. It's just a really grisly... If you think about this image, it's very horrible but it it should strike the point of this image is to strike us to show us how holy god is and how worthy of judgment the world is without christ's forgiveness and it is jesus who is doing the treading look at revelation 19 turn to revelation 19 quickly look at revelation 19 15 This is another vivid description of the return of Jesus. It says, Out of His mouth comes a sharp sword. So we have a sharp sickle, a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Here we go. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now notice back up in verse 13. It says, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now your first instinct might be to think oh that's referring to his blood that was shed on the cross. But I think in this context its pretty a, a better interpretation is is that it's it's the blood of the the winepress trampling. It's a really horrific picture and this also comes out of the Old Testament. Here's the third major Old Testament allusion. Take out your sermon notes one more time. This image of God trampling down the nations in a winepress comes from Isaiah chapter 63 in your sermon notes, The Wine Press of God's Wrath. Where God says, I have trodden the wine press alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. I trampled down the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. And notice how much Blood there is. I mean, that's another grisly thing. Going back to Revelation 14, verse 20. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So you have a measurement of depth as deep as a horse's bridle. I, I don't really know horses. What's that, like four feet? Kind of hereish. Pretty deep. And then 1,600 stadia. A stadia is uh, um, about 200 yards um, so, think of in track running a 200. That's a stadia, and so 1600 stadia, if you calculate that out, is about 184 miles. So, just this hyperbolic image of of blood. <laughs> it, it's a com- the point is, it's a complete, total, universal judgment against all mankind. It's massive, it's overwhelming, it's unspeakable, as God's judgment takes place. And then the last thing I would point out about the ruining of the grapes. Is that verse twenty it takes place where outside the city the New Jerusalem is the home of god 's people that we read about in Zechariah this morning, but outside the city is the place of judgment look uh, final verse look at revelation chapter twenty two verse fourteen Revelation twenty two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, having their sins forgiven through Christ, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, murderers, the idolaters, and everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. So you have the inside of Jerusalem where God's people are, and then the outside where this ocean of blood is. It's like the the ark. The ark was safe, and outside were the waters of judgment. And so it will be on that day. So what do you do with a text like this? What do we do with this? What does this mean for our lives? Probably a lot of things, but let me suggest two. Two things this means. I think one application to take away from this for our lives is that we need to repent of our sins. We need to repent before we get ripe. We need to repent before we get ripe and are reaped. We need to repent before we get ripe and are reaped and then are ruined by God's coming wrath. We have to turn to Christ. We can't wait any longer. And the good news is that if we'll repent and turn to Christ, we'll be forgiven. Even if you're the 90-year-old berry. You know, just completely ripe and ready to be plucked. There's still time. You know, I I think of the the story of that ripe fruit hanging on a tree in the book of Luke. The thief who hung on the cross next to Jesus. You know that story? Talk about a ripe fruit hanging on a tree. Was that thief? I mean, this guy had a life of villainy, crime, lawlessness. He's on the cross. He's hours, maybe minutes away from dying. You know, he's, he's laboring with each of his final breaths as he slowly succumbs to the, the agonies of crucifixion. And in that final moment, he looks at Jesus and says, "Have, you know, basically, have mercy on me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, don't, don't forget me. Think of me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so even in that moment, at the very end, there was still time. And so Christ, Christ can save us. I don't know how full of guilt you are, but I know this. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. Christ's blood is more powerful than our sin. And so let's, let's turn to Christ. Let's come back to Him. Let's confess our sins if we've been walking in disobedience in light of this coming judgment. And then secondly, I think a second application is let's be active in the harvest today. You know, there's two harvests in the New Testament, right? There's the final harvest day that Jesus does when he comes again. But Jesus also talks about another harvest. It's the gospel harvest that's taking place right now. It's the one Jesus talked about when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into the, the harvest field. That's the harvest that we do as we go out and sow the seed of the gospels. We love people, tell them about Christ, serve others, live a godly life in front of the world. And every once in a while, we have the opportunity to reap the harvest as people come to faith in Christ. And so we're engaged in that harvest today. And so I think that's probably the second application. Because this other harvest is coming, we need to be active. Uh, If we are disciples of Jesus, we have to be people who are making disciples. If I call myself a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I have no concern for seeing other people come to faith, then I have to really question whether or not I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he was a fisher of men. And if I say I'm a disciple of him, I do what he does, but I don't care about people, then I'm missing out on what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus, who was a disciple maker, a fisher of men who, who saw men growing and loving. And, you know, making disciples is not just the job of pastors and missionaries. It's every Christian, every disciple is called to be a disciple maker in some way or another. So, so who's on your heart? Who's on your mind? Do you have someone? You know, who are you praying for to come to know the Lord? You know, we did this building pledge drive recently and we all turned in a pledge, like I'm gonna, I pledge this much money for the building project. I almost feel like we should have given two cards. Like card number one is, this is how much money I'm gonna give. And then card number two is, and these are the names of the people I'm praying for to join me in the new building worshiping God. Like we should have turned in two cards. You know, this is who I'm concerned about. Uh, for me right now, it's my neighborhood. When I go and walk my dog in the morning, I'll go on my little prayer walk and as I walk through my neighborhood, um, when I'm not cleaning up after my dog, you know, I'm, I'm praying and uh, walking through the neighborhood, praying for the different houses, just praying, starting with my own house, hmm? praying that Christ will be the center of the home, praying that the people in the home will know the Lord. I don't know who knows the Lord or doesn't know the Lord in my neighborhood. That's his business, but my business is just to love people and pray for them and and share the gospel. You know, who's who's on your heart that God has put there, as we think about. Harvesting. To whom do you need to share the wonderful message that Jesus Christ went outside the city, was trampled down on the cross, that Jesus Christ outside the city shed His blood as the wrath of God crushed Him in our place so that we who should be judged are instead forgiven and washed and are welcomed into the city forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for the day of your coming. Texts like this, just they make us in awe and longing, but also dread, Lord, of that great and terrible day. God, give us compassion for people around us. Help us, Lord, to look into our own hearts to make sure that we really know you, that we truly are your disciples. And then, Jesus, give us a heart of ministry. Whether we're officially pastors or not is irrelevant, Lord. Help us to have hearts of ministry to the people around us. Lord, make us people who are concerned for our neighbors and our children and our parents and our spouses, and our coworkers, Lord, and the kid sits next to us in the homeroom. Help us to pray for them, Lord, and to be concerned for their salvation. Oh God, we know this great day is coming. Help us to live in light of it, and not just go on with our lives as if this day weren't right around the corner. And so Lord, make us ready. Keep us awake and alert. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise team, would you come and lead us in a song?